I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. As you know, this first series of the show has been the alphabet series, as each week's theme has followed the alphabet. And this week arrived at Z, or Z, for my American listeners. And to conclude this series, I am delighted to have as my guest, Zora Murph. Zora Murph is an MFA candidate in studio art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Zora attended the University of Iowa, where he studied photography and holds a BS in psychology from Iowa State University. Combining his education in human services and art, Zora's photography focuses on race, identity, and how images are used to reinforce socio-cultural constructs. His work has been exhibited nationally, internationally, and featured online, including the British Journal of Photography and Wired Magazine's Raw File. His work has also been published in Vice Magazine, Good Magazine, Huck Magazine, and the New York Times. Zora was the Daylight Photo Award winner in 2017, a Joy of Giving Something fellow through Imagining America in 2016, and a Lens Culture 2015 Top 50 Emerging Talent. A portfolio of his work is included in the Midwest Photographers Project through the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago. Zora published his first monograph, Corrections, through Ain't Bad Editions in the winter of 2015. Welcome to the show, Zora. Thanks for having me, Stuart. That's a nice little list of accomplishments, and and you're only 21. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I actually don't know how old. Yeah, I'm 30. 30. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, just turned 30. Tell me about your upbringing. Uh, Well, you know, I... Grew up in the Midwest. I was uh, born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, And, uh, you know, it was just my mom and my brother and I, my older brother, Andre. Um, And then, let's see, uh, moved to Northwest Iowa um, when I was a sophomore in high school. And that's where I graduated from high school, uh, Henton, Iowa, very, very small town um, right outside of Sioux City. And so I went from, you know, like a graduating class of like 500 people to a graduating class of 50. Uh, So it was, you know, a bit of a culture shock for me, um, you know, moving from, uh, quote unquote, the big city uh, to a small rural town. Um, And then, yeah, you know, from there, I kind of bounced around Iowa. Um, I lived in, uh, in Ames while I did my degree in psychology. And then I moved to Iowa City and that's where I got my, um, well, I didn't get my degree, um, a little caveat on that, but anyway, uh, you know, I got my, um, studied photo there and then moved on to, to the university of Nebraska for my graduate studies. It's always interesting to me how I often ask people, tell me about your upbringing mm-hmm. and the, they leap chronologically oh, sure. through various elements. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. And what I tend to do is then ask them, but like, what was it like to grow up as you grew up? Paint that picture. For <laughs> Paint me. that picture for me. Uh, well, you know, I've always been um, a really reserved person, um, and I think that you know I spent a lot of time like in my own head, in my own thoughts, in my own imagination. Uh, I remember like having um, imaginary friends growing up, and they lived like in these utility closets in our apartment complex. <laughs> and, you know, so they never, like, I was never like outside playing with them. Um, it was always, I would go to them and like, we would hang out, you know, I'd be in the hallway and I'd be talking to this utility closet. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that's, um, you know, I still don't have an imaginary friends today, but, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I do like, I'm a very, um, introspective person, you know, I, I do spend, I still spend a lot of time in my head and I think that's uh, maybe where my creativity comes from. So you mentioned your older brother, Andre, mm-hmm. your mother. Yeah. Um, so your father, uh, he left when I was, oh, I think four or five. Um, you know, I, I have some memories of him, uh, growing up, but I didn't really have much of a relationship after he left. It was, you know, kind of communication through letters, uh, the occasional phone call. Um, he came to visit randomly one time when I was in junior high. Um, and then I saw him, I think the last time I saw him in person was probably like maybe 2008, 2009. Um, and we have random communication here and there, but 
yeah, don't know him very well. I love this idea of the uh, imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. So, so what else was life like? You you mentioned this um, like a housing situation. I, I, mm-hmm. I I'm trying to imagine what this was like. Uh, yeah. So, um, like the first place we ever lived, like you know, as far as like I'm concerned, um, you know, when I was brought into the picture, um, we lived in this apartment complex on the south side of Des Moines. And we lived there, I think, maybe a couple of years after uh, my dad left. And I remember that, like, when my mom told me that we were moving, um, that being, like, a fairly traumatic experience. um, Because I, you know, even though, like, you know, family had told me that he was gone, he wasn't coming back, all these things, you know, like, as a kid, of course, you can't fathom that or understand it. And you think that, you know, he's going to come back. And so I remember thinking that... um, you know, he wouldn't be able to find us if he came back and we weren't there. Um, but, you know, then as you get older, uh, you know, you start to understand, understand these things. And uh, yeah, so we, you know, we moved a couple of different times, um, like once when I was in elementary to this new house and then um, again in junior high. Uh, but yeah, yeah, just lived all over the south side of Des Moines growing up. How do you think your childhood experiences of informed your character? Um, I think that like my reservation, I suppose, um, always like, I guess, kind of assessing a situation before I try to react to it. Um, I, you know, my, um, you know, growing up like that's my family was, you know, kind of that way where they were very kind of reactionary in the moment. And, um, I never really understood like, you know, that, like that side of them or that character um, because I was just so different, you know, like people would say, you know, people say that I'm laid back. Uh, I don't think that I'm necessarily laid back. It just seems like I have kind of a delayed response to things. You know, I, I, again, I have to kind of drink all of this information in and take time to process it before I, you know, kind of respond to it. So in your, your bio, you talk about getting a, a BS in psychology. Mm-hmm. So at some point in your teenage years somehow you were drawn to a field of study mm-hmm. and I don't know how much you fell into mm-hmm. the study of psychology right. or if this was something that you'd actually proactively determined for yourself that this was a field of academic interest mm-hmm. that you wanted to explore um well you know I think there's like a couple of different ways um that I kind of fell into it so when I got done with high school I thought I was going to be an English teacher uh, <laughs> and that didn't last very long. So in my first year of college, uh, I was at the community college in Sioux City. Um, and, uh, you know, I was taking all of these English courses and, you know, thinking like, yeah, this is, you know, going to be the right thing for me. Uh, but it just turned out like I wasn't, I didn't keep my interest. Um, and so I, you know, was kind of floundering about, not really sure what it was I wanted to do. Um, but I had, this feeling that I needed to be in school, um, because if I, you know, like if I dropped out or, you know, like said I would take a break that I would never really go back to it. Like I would probably get comfortable doing something else and not, you know, really value my education. Uh, so, um, I was taking an intro to psychology course and, you know, that kind of sparked my interest. And so I continued, um, I continued studying psychology and I think, so, you know, there's kind of that aspect of it, but then also, um, uh, growing up, um, my mom struggled with alcoholism and, uh, I never really talked with anyone about that, um, growing up, uh, never really kind of sought out help. Um, you know, just thinking that was, you know, like that's how life is. These things happen. Um, and you just deal with it. Uh, and so I was, you know, interested in kind of studying, uh, you know, why we do the things that we do. And then also, you know, thinking that along the line or, you know, after I, after I was done, um, with my education in psychology that I would go on to be a counselor and maybe help, you know, kids that were, um, you know, in situations similar to mine. Shake it, 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 shake it
Shaking baby dolls, shake it on the floor. Shake it, shake it like I'm on the white beach. Shake it, shake it. You know what to do. photographer how did you first come to realize that this was a craft and a creative outlet that you wanted to explore well that relates directly to um, my study in psychology so I you know I got through most of the track I got into my last year and I was taking all of these research methodology courses and so you know I did the counseling side up front like the counseling techniques and things and I really enjoyed those and those those skills came very naturally to me but then when you get to like statistics and, and all these other things and they're telling you, yeah, like, you know, this number means a letter and this letter means something. And, you know, like I was like, okay, I can't do this. And, uh, you know, thinking about going to graduate school for psychology and doing research, I was like, I don't, I definitely don't want to do that. Um, so, you know, I finished my degree because it was, you know, I was already at the end. And so I just powered through and finished it, but then it was like, okay, you know, I think, this is it. You know, I have this degree um, and I'll just, you know, find work that, you know, I can get with with this uh, with this degree. And that worked for a while. Um, but there was always something that like felt like I, I was missing. You know, um, I worked with people with disabilities, people with mental illness. Um, you know, I started working with uh, the kids on probation um, when I began simultaneously studying photography. Um, but, you know, those were all jobs that like there is a level of fulfillment in them and um, working with people um, and helping them, you know, like attain their their own goals and being a part of that. But um, it just didn't ever seem like it was enough. Um, you know, I was constantly taking work home. That became really stressful in itself. Uh, and so, you know, I um, bought a camera because I wanted to have a hobby and uh, just started taking photographs. Um, and then, you know, people are like, you know, family and friends are seeing them and telling me that, you know, these things are really good. And yeah, so I was like, okay, well, maybe this is what I want to do. And uh, so I thought that I would probably do like the commercial side of it. So I was looking at like a lot of um, like fashion photography and things like that. Uh, and thinking that's, you know, how I would make my money. And then I took a course at the Des Moines Art Center, um, just, you know, basic camera operation, things of that nature. And uh, the instructor talked a lot about photography as an art form. And I had never really considered it that way. So, I you know, I just thought that, I guess, after hearing that, I came to the realization, like, yeah, this is, I think this is what I'm looking for. Like that drive to create something uh, was what had been missing all along. Is that the first time you picked up a camera? That was the, well, not necessarily. So, you know, I did have like disposable cameras as a, as a kid. Um, and I would, you know, just kind of, you know, document things, friends, my surroundings, things of that nature. But I never really saw it as like art. Of course, looking back, you know, it was important in like, you know, forming who I am today. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really ever see it that way. I just, you know, like, you know, my mom had disposable cameras and she would use them like at parties and things. And, you know, of course, when you're a kid, like having that gadget looks fun, right? You know, and you get to make your own, your own pictures. Uh, and, you know, so I did do that, but yeah, not anything like, I guess, really artistically driven, I suppose. You express the idea of an epiphany in terms of seeing photography as art through this Des Moines Art Center mm -hmm. course. Do you remember what it was that made you realize you wanted to buy a camera? Um, no, not really. I think it was, um, yeah, no, I don't really recall like what it was. I think, you know, having, just having, yeah, like a sort of hobby or something like that. It was just really interesting to me um, or interested me. Um, but I do remember also at the Des Moines Art Center, very formative in who I am today. 
Um, but uh, I remember seeing a Sally Mann photograph. Uh, it's of her three children. Um, and they're, you know, like standing together in the frame. Um, I think the, well, the title of the photograph is Emma, Jesse, and Virginia. I don't remember the year. Um, but I remember they had that up in their, um, like their permanent collection exhibit. And, you know, I remember kind of getting lost in that photograph, just standing in front of it and it kind of transporting me somewhere else to the point that I, it was, yeah, it was like, I guess, uh, transcendental is the right word. Um, but it reminded me of growing up with my, my brother and my cousin and kind of that close bond that we had with each other. Um, and realizing like the power the image has, um, to, you know, kind of make you feel something or move you in a particular way. It seems interesting to me that you identified a need for whatever reason to acquire a camera and to, I think you use the word hobby to mm -hmm. fill your time. Yeah. And it's almost as if you saw that then as a, an antidote to the pressures of some of the counseling work mm -hmm. or being involved in that environment. Yeah. And only then was there this epiphany that the camera could be a medium for something much more mm -hmm. creative and productive. Yeah. So how did you begin to start rationalizing what might seem to be two very separate endeavors, one in the realm of psychological mm -hmm. counseling and and the other in, in terms of artistic expression? Well, I think that came through um, first my self-education in um, photography as a fine art. And so that's, you know, visiting the museum, um, looking at artists' work online, and then, you know, following that is with, um, you know, like my formal education and realizing that like, you know, to do this and to do it well, I need to learn, you know, from somebody who already knows how to do it very well. Um, and doing that in like a formalized setting seemed, um, like the appropriate avenue for me at least. Um, and so, you know, I, I took some courses at the, uh, community college in Des Moines, just like basic intro courses. And then um, when I moved to Iowa City, then enrolling at the University of Iowa and beginning my studies there. You'd said that maybe photography could be a way to make a living. Mm -hmm. And you thought maybe more towards the commercial side of things, the agency side of things, whether mm -hmm. fashion shooting or so on and so forth. Right. People don't tend to see the arts as a way to make a, mm -hmm. a robust living. Right. You know, what was going through your head when you thought, I know. I'm going to put to one side a career and I'm going to be an artist and my medium is going to be photography mm -hmm. and I'm going to make this work. How? Uh, <laughs> well, I think, you know, I still, um, you know, being very naive to, um, you know, like I guess trying to make a living as an artist, you know, I thought that, you know, well, I can make my art on the side and then I'll do these like, you know, commercial things, right. Um, to pay the bills. Um, but, when I started at the University of Iowa and uh, working with uh, closely with my professors and realizing um, how valuable I found my education, um, like and how valuable I found their mentorship and then realizing like, you know, I've I've in some capacity been like an educator. Right. Um, but I also want to create things and like, why do I have to think about those as separate things? Right. And so, um, yeah, I was like, I realized that like, you know, I want to be an educator as well as an artist. So, you know, I will, you know, I'll pursue this and I'll get my MFA and then I'll, I'll try to get a professorship somewhere. You are listening to lives. We'll be back after the break. I turn my camera on. I cut my fingers on the way On the way The waves slipping away I turn my feelings on You made me untouchable for life Yeah, yeah You was not mine It hit me like a tongue You hit me like a tongue I turn my feelings on 
a degree of acclaim mm-hmm. that perhaps belies what you described as your naivete at the beginning. Sure, right, yeah. When did you start to realize that you're actually good at this? <laughs> um, well, I, uh, so I, in, during my, um, my studies as an undergraduate in photo, um, I started taking an advanced photography course and we just hired a new professor. His name is, is Jeff Rich and... Um, so it was, you know, it was my first class with him and the, I guess the scope of the course was that you were going to make one cohesive body of work, um, throughout the, throughout the semester. And that really just scared the out of me, uh, when he said that, um, and you know, so I'm like kind of scrambling that first week thinking about, you know, like, well, what am I going to work on? What am I going to do? And again, I guess, you know, like the series of epiphanies that happens to me um, where I'm kind of thinking and very like, I guess, like having a degree of tunnel vision, you know, um, and I'm not thinking very broadly. And uh, so when I started at the uh, juvenile detention center, like I, you know, had kind of always noticed things and um, was thinking like, oh, that might make a nice photograph, uh, so on and so forth. And, you know, I'm working full time, I'm going to school part time. Uh, And so, you know, time is a very valuable resource trying to be a student and a full time employee. And I was like, well, you know, why don't I just bring these two things together? Um, And so, you know, that's kind of the beginning of my series corrections. But, you know, like uh, after our first couple of critiques, uh, Jeff pulled me aside and was like, you know, this is really great work. Um, And I think that, you know, this could take you places. Um, and he had just done an interview with, um, a writer for Wired magazine. And he was like, would it be okay if I sent this guy, um, your information? And I was like, well, I guess, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, not really knowing like what, <laughs> what that was ultimately going to lead to. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I, he did this piece on my work and, uh, that's kind of the beginning. And once, you know, people started seeing it, um, then it just kind of picked up steam from there. You mentioned that your work is inspired by addresses issues of race, identity, and how visual expression reinforces social cultural constructs. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that that relates to some of your corrections work. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to explain some of that work sure. and, and what you were trying to highlight, what sort of themes you were pulling out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was, all, I've always been very drawn to portraiture and I think that kind of goes back to that initial experience with that Sally Mann photo. Um, and so I knew I wanted to make portraits and, um, so, you know, I was making portraits of the kids. Um, and then, you know, like after a while, like, that kind of gets repetitive. And so then what else, you know, what else, what other types of images can I make to, um, like show their experiences inside of the system? And so, uh, you know, it was the, so it started with the portraits and then I moved on to making the landscapes of the crime scenes, like where they had committed crimes. Um, and then, you know, then going further and, um, starting to, 
uh, photograph items that they come into contact with when they're incarcerated um, in, in the studio. And then, you know, digging through these archives at the detention center that have like all their personal writings that they do for these assignments. Um, and then, you know, kind of, I guess, taking a step back and figuring out like what all of these things mean, I guess, like when they're, when they're put together under, you know, one context or one umbrella. And so it's, I guess, looking at how these kids become stigmatized when they're brought into the system, you know, like they're, they're criminals and we as a society see the criminal as the other, right? But then also looking at um, ideas of uh, memory, um, you know, like these, these locations that hold these memories of these crimes that happen. But then also, and then also looking at, I guess, like how the context of the system influences not only these objects, but then um, how that extends to the person who has to interact with that object. I don't know, like it, it all, I guess, relates in how like photography has been used inside of the criminal justice system since its inception. Uh, I mean, you have like the, the Bertillon system, um, which was um, invented by Alphonse Bertillon in France, where, and that's where we draw the mugshot from. And it was, he was trying to document the criminal type so, you know, like an image of a person mixed with like phrenology and physiognomy and, um, you know, like taking head and skull measurements and saying like, you know, well, a person with a forehead this big is, you know, tends to be, you know, tends to commit crimes. So therefore, you know, they're a criminal and how those kind of antiquated ideals are passed or, you know, like are brought forward um, into the present day and how we think that, you know, these things are changing, but in a lot of ways, they're not changing. They just get rebranded or in some sort of way. There's no mistake. I smell that smell. It's that time of year again. I can taste the The clocks go back. Railway track. Something blocks the You spoke in September 2016 at TEDx Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And of course, for listeners, you can go online and, and search for Zora's presentation. One of the things, Zora, that you said was that if we can't change reality, can we change the eyes with which we see it? And that's such a fascinating idea mm -hmm. that you are using your craft and your talent and photographs as, as a way to replace the viewer's eyes. Right. So could you perhaps just expand a little bit on, on that idea mm -hmm. of using your craft and using photography as a way to help people see see things anew? Well, I think that with, you know, like the portraiture um, and corrections, thinking about this individual's personhood, we know that, you know, like under the context that I've provided that, you know, this kid is in some sort of trouble. Um, but how do we like see past that, I guess? How does, how does someone regain their, their personhood after being, being called a criminal or being labeled a criminal. And I think that comes with like, I suppose, you know, looking at what it is that I've made, um, thinking about ideas that you hold and then maybe 
trying to shift or reframe those ideas or at least starting a conversation about it. Um, one thing that does typically happen, um, you know, like if I have an exhibition or, or something like that, there's usually one or two people that come up to me and just say, wow, I didn't know that this existed in my own community. And so, you know, that in itself, you know, it starts a conversation or, you know, meeting someone who has been through the juvenile criminal justice system themselves and saying, wow, like I really like how you show these kids for who they really are. Right. Yeah, I guess I guess thinking about it in those terms. Are you able to describe an example or an illustration of some of the processes and themes that you've been talking about? Mm hmm. Well, I think that, you know, art can operate in a multitude of ways. Um, you know, it can be very, I guess, like in your face and you kind of get it right away um, or you can rely on nuance. And so I think for me, at least a lot of the best art is art that's nuanced that I can look at and I think that I understand it. Um, but then I go back to it and I think about it again and I notice something that I hadn't seen before. Right. Uh, and so I think with, uh, the images that I've made, it kind of operates, I suppose, in both ways. Um, and so there's one portrait in particular of a young man who's wearing an ankle monitor and he's standing on a, um, a track around a football field and there's like the, um, the goalpost in the background and, you know, he's turning his body away from the camera and he's looking at the goalpost. And so I think, um, that image to me is, I guess, not necessarily a nuanced image. Um, you know, I was, when I was making that portrait, I was thinking about that young man and, um, he was a great athlete, just a, a really, really great athlete. I mean, he did football and, and wrestling and track and was just amazing at it. Um, but, you know, being put on an electronic monitor, um, he couldn't play football that season. And thinking about how that piece of plastic was a tether, you know, like a shackle and how it was keeping him weighted to the ground, you know, where he couldn't, you know, he couldn't get up and reach his own potential. Uh, and he, you know, he dealt a lot with that. Um, I think that was really hard for him. And I think that, um, is kind of, it's the weight of the system itself. Um, you know, it's, yes, you know, this kid did something wrong, um, but you're taking away his opportunity to better himself. And how is that in a way helping him? Right. And so, yeah, so I think, well, I, I think I've just kind of explained the nuance, right. Um, but you know, so yeah, upfront visually, it seems very kind of, you know, in your face, you see the ankle monitor, you see the kid, you see the goalpost and you just, you can assume this kid is an athlete. And then the nuance comes in with all of those kind of underlying issues. I think the difficulty with that is like your viewer has the choice to engage with that and try to dig, you know, to that place within themselves, but it's really up to them. And you, you know, the artist can't be there to kind of explain that to everybody. Like I've just explained it to you. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Her back, 
I'm Stuart Chittenden and my guest today is Zora Murph. Do you think that in some ways you've come full circle? You're practicing the art of counseling and psychology and expressing the world that way, but using photography as the means by which you do that. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I guess I have thought about it in those terms before. Um, but again, maybe I'm, you know, I'm getting tunnel vision and thinking like, I'm not a psychologist, I'm an artist, right? Um, but no, I, I do think that, um, yeah, yeah, I think you, like, I can't erase or, or divorce like that experience um, or that education, you know, and it's, you know, those experiences are going to inform what it is I'm doing now. And so, yeah, obviously there's still, yeah. Do you take photographs for what you would regard as pure art? There is meant to be no deep hidden meaning other than you appreciate the aesthetic qualities of a particular frame. And so you shoot it and that's it. Oh, no, I mean, I, I definitely do that. Um, but I think I don't consider that my art and I, that's a conversation that I have with my students a lot. Um, is that there's a difference, I guess, how I word it is, there's a, there's a difference between a picture and an image. You know, typically with my students, when we have our first critique, they talk about, you know, oh, I took this, this picture because um, it was aesthetically pleasing to me and I would want to hang it in my house. So usually that's like the point when I stop them, you know, stop right there. Uh, let's have a conversation about this. And so, uh, you know, I remind them that they're in my class to learn about photography as an art form. And, um, they're also there to learn a technical skill. So the technical skill alone will teach you how to make a picture. Um, learning about photography as an art form will teach you how to make an image. And an image is, is to me at least, um, more meaningful. It has that power to make somebody stop and think about something or, or make them feel a certain way or maybe move them to do something. Right. Um, and so, yeah, like we, we have that discussion a lot, but I, I think that I, I do take my own pictures, right? But yeah, I don't consider those my, my art or my images. Are you in some ways trying to reclaim that emotional resonance that you found with the Sally Mann image in your own work? And not necessarily the same image, of course, sure. but an image that has the power to provoke people uh, to think and feel. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and I mean, I think that like, if you just make something beautiful to make something beautiful, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I guess I'm interested in going deeper than that with, uh, with my, with my own photography. I have, of course I can make something beautiful and someone can look at it and enjoy it. Right. For its aesthetic quality. But for me, that's not enough. If that's not enough, it suggests that that's the minimum threshold. Mm -hmm. So what are you trying to do with photography? How far can you push that medium? Um, that's a good question. And I think that's what I'm maybe trying to explore. I'm trying to find, <laughs> maybe I'm trying to find that limit or that boundary. Corrections is one of the series that you mm -hmm. were pursuing and you were describing that earlier. Yeah. What are some of the other thematic issues that you've tried to address through, mm -hmm. you know, through photography? Um, so I have, uh, well, I've been working on a few things. So with um, my graduate track, like, you know, at the end you have to put on a thesis show and try, I've been trying to figure out what it is that I want to make. And um, about the beginning of last year, I started uh, looking at the community of North Omaha and looking at that, uh, at its history um, at the points of unrest that were driven by race and then also how um, uh, issues like um, the Federal Housing Administration um, redlining, you know, urban areas and how, you know, um, people of one race get put into one to one area because of segregation and then how that area isn't invested in financially. And then over time, um, you know, it it starts to kind of fall apart and how that, again, how that was driven by race, the construct of race. So yeah, I've been trying to, I guess with my photography, look at those issues um, and how like 
I guess I see it as I see redlining as a, a form of violence, but we don't perceive it as violence because it takes so long for those things to manifest and we can't perceive the risk. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm, I've been looking at the landscape of North Omaha and, uh, kind of exploring that. And then I, I work on a, a collaborative project with my girlfriend and that's more personally driven. Um, like we're kind of mining our own family histories. We both grew up with an absent parent. And so we're making work about that. How do you go about capturing something that seems as abstract as redlining, which was, a a policy mm-hmm. that inherently is invisible to the naked eye right. and categorize it as violence mm-hmm. and then capture that through visual medium? Uh, that's been the question that I've been trying to answer for the past year. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I guess I've been looking for kind of signs in the landscape. Um, and it started when I first visited North Omaha. Like I noticed a lot of the empty lots where you could tell something used to be there, um, but it isn't anymore, whether it's a home or a business. And um, figuring out like, you know, why those things were um, destroyed, essentially. Um, and so, you know, photographing those things, looking at um, the construction of the North Freeway and how that displaced people and how that was built through North Omaha because of, again, because of race, because um, black individuals didn't have enough social capital to say, no, you're not going to put that here. Right. Yeah. Looking at those types of things and then trying to figure out how like other elements to bring in that um, can, I guess, reframe this issue as a, as a form of violence that's, you know, perpetrated because of race. So you have an exhibition titled mm-hmm. Where We Land, mm-hmm. uh, the Union for Contemporary Art. Mm-hmm. And as part of that exhibition, you're co-delivering a lecture. Mm-hmm. And part of the theme of that for you is the image is witness. Mm-hmm. Explain how you think about that concept of mm-hmm. the image as a witness. Uh, how so and, and witness to what? Um, well, I think uh, the exhibition looks at um, the ideas of like personhood and place. Um, and so you have work by the artist Lachelle Workman, uh, Jordan Weber, and myself. And we all are looking at um, different issues, but we're looking at how these issues like affect community essentially. Um, and thinking about like how the image as witness relates. So I think that, um, you know, the art we make is a form of witnessing because we are taking in what we see and then we're creating something from that, whether it's, uh, um, you know, like an installation and performance like, uh, Jordan Weber does, um, or, you know, installation and uh, photograph like Lachelle, um, has in the show or, you know, like my own photographs. Right. But I guess extending upon that, um, thinking about like when I, when I, when they asked me to, um, participate in the talk and, um, they said that, you know, it's going to be titled image as witness. You know, I think a lot about the, uh, the parade, this seemingly endless parade of police shooting videos that we see and how the image is supposed to function as a form of evidence, right? You know, like we can record this footage. We know that this is happening. Uh, We know we can see it with our eyes. And how like these videos don't seem to be working as a form of evidence, given the results of, um, you know, officers killing people and then getting off because they, you know, felt that they were, you know, at risk or they feared for their lives. Right. Um, And that's not to you know, uh, how do I want to word this? I think that, you know, fear can be real, but 
what is it about, you know, how have we been trained through images to see black individuals as dangerous? Right. Um, and then how, you know, these images that are supposed to serve as evidence that are supposed to, um, you know, serve as proof as like, you know, this person did something wrong. Um, we don't see it that way because of those perceptions of the black individual as dangerous. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. All the pictures on the wall Serve only to remind you of it all Wasted days we could have lived oh, And we're left with nothing left to give There was a time I really loved you When there was I just can't say All the memories merge into one As each day becomes each day The clock is ticking on the wall Whoa. I just remind us of it all Just the days we could have lived Whoa. Now we're left with nothing left to give Nothing challenging or provocative about this discussion, then. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is really interesting because then I think that it makes me reflect on the long history of art over millennia. It it has a pedigree about speaking to issues that concern us mm-hmm. as a society, as individuals. Right. Whether we are looking at the dark underbelly of existence or the noblest examples of the human condition. Art has always spoken to these themes. So how do you make photography maintain its relevance in the light that it used to be artist and spectator and now everybody Mm -hmm. with with an iPhone is now an artist? So how do you assert relevance as a, you know, as a guru of the medium? (laughs) Uh, You know, I think it goes back to the idea of making pictures and making images, you know. yeah. And I think, I mean, we, you know, there was this, um, this shift at, um, the turn of the century when photography became democratized, you know, with the Brownie camera, right. You no longer had to visit a portrait studio and, and pay this expert to take your photograph and you could go and make your own pictures. And so I think like that is that democratization is liberating in a way, um, because now people like everyone has access to be able to make pictures, right? Um, and so maybe somebody out there will realize like how good they are at making pictures because you know their their cell phone has a camera on it, and maybe they couldn't go out and buy the nice camera themselves. Um, so I mean, you know, there there's that side of it, but then there's also the side that you know, yeah, like if you, I don't know, like I don't <laughs> I don't want to say something as like I guess snarky as like either have it or you don't have it. Right. Um, (laughs) but but yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, yeah, like if you're an artist, um, you know, you'll find a way to create something. And if that's with a camera, then, you know, it's with it, it's with a camera and you're a photographer. You've talked a little bit about being inspired by other photographers and you've also talked a lot about the idea of, um, using photography to explore personhood and how we think about identity through uh, the lens or the other side of the lens. So I want to finish by asking you 
how the camera has shaped you, how this art has given you a sense of personhood. Who is Zora Murph now that you are a photographic artist? Uh, Well, I think that the camera has given me sight and it's also given me voice. Um, I think that I, I process things a lot differently than I did before. Um, I tend to notice things, um, that, you know, I, I never really paid attention to. Um, yeah. So I guess it's made me really think about what it is that I'm seeing. Um, but then it's also given me voice, you know, it's giving me a platform to be able to, to make something and put it out in the world and, you know, hopefully inspire somebody else. Yeah. And then it's just provided a way for me to just continue to connect with, with other people. listen to this show again and to hear past shows download the podcast at itunes search for lives radio show with Stuart chittenden and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show i've been in conversation with zora murph zora thank you for being here with me today it's been a pleasure That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>